but it, uh, classic Banff, right? No, it's, uh, that's probably everywhere, actually. Uh, let's open to Daniel. We're going we're gonna to look at chapter 2 here. I'll give you a little brief explanation of last week, and then we'll get into this week. Last week, we started talking about a dream that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, had, but he wouldn't tell anybody what it was, but he wanted them to interpret what it was and tell them what it was. And so we didn't actually look at the dream at all. That's, that's going to be this morning. But what we looked at was both kind of what the king had to say, then what the wise men of Babylon said, and then how Daniel dealt with these things. And there were two kind of main takeaways from that. The first thing is when the king says, uh, tell me the dream and then interpret it, they say there's not a man alive who could do that. What you're asking is impossible. And, and they actually say, in verse 11 of chapter 2, uh, the thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And we looked at how they were exactly right and exactly wrong. And in, in kind of two phases of that, first of all, they're actually kind of foreshadowing and almost unwillingly submitting themselves to Daniel's leadership when Daniel actually goes, oh, actually, there is one God who does speak with flesh, who does commune with men. And so all of a sudden, they have kind of said, no one could do this, king, but then Daniel comes, so they kind of have to then go, I guess Daniel's God is far greater than, than our God that we serve. But then secondly, we looked at kind of the, the, we'll call it the macro view of the whole Bible, and that when you go all the way to the book of John, we find out that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became, and, Right? It's exactly what they just said God doesn't do. And as God does so often in Scripture, he went, <laughs> hang on. This is how I'm going to bring salvation. I'm actually going to send my son, Jesus, who is fully God, down to the earth to become fully man so that he dwells with you and so that he can ultimately go to the cross, die on the cross, rise again. He forgives our sins. We, he conquers death. The very plan of God is the very thing that the wise men say, God, do not do this. So that's the first takeaway. The second takeaway was Daniel's own humility in that. Is you could have seen over and over how he could have sought credit or, or just even not said anything because the king, and you'll see this this week as well here in our text this morning, the king's going to be like, Daniel, you are the greatest of all men. And he could very easily just be like, yes, I know, thank you elevate me to some high place, and I'll just do the things that I want to do for me. But Daniel understands that even though he's in exile, even though his culture's been taken away from him, even though they're trying in the Babylonian culture to make him adhere to this polytheistic nation, he goes, no, there is one true God, and he alone interprets dreams. And so when he goes before the king, he says, nobody can do this, except there is a God who does reveal mysteries. And he has revealed it. And he actually says, it's not because of my wisdom any more than anyone else's. And we, we kind of reminded ourselves that at the end of the three years that they trained to serve the king, the king actually said that he found Daniel and his three friends ten times wiser than anyone in all the kingdom. So it would be real easy for him to take credit. And we might even say logical. But he goes, no, this is not because of me. This is about God. And we're going to continue to see that humility in Daniel and actually, we're going to see this contrast between the king and Daniel, between arrogance and humility and what God actually calls us to do and how he calls us to live. 
So let's start in 31 of chapter 2, and we're going to read to the end again. A little bit of a longer section, but I think it flows. I I don't want to break it up. So let's read. Uh, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, I just want to stop. I'm going to forget to say this. Notice how he says, we will tell the king. This is, he doesn't ever take credit. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you now. Through God, I'm going to tell you the interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like the iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And all you saw... Sorry, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and he paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So the narrative there is actually a really interesting kind of story. Here's this dream. He's going to interpret it and explain uh, to the king. But I want to warn you, because I needed this warning, and I didn't even listen to this warning, even though I warned myself. It's so easy as we read this to get really hung up in, ooh, the kingdoms. 
which four kingdoms are these? And getting really hung up in the details of that and looking ahead to when's Christ coming again? And is this passage giving us specific details of times and places and, and all these things? And spoiler alert, it's not. It is talking about the second coming, but it's more talking about the first coming of Christ. And we'll talk about this a little bit, and we will talk about a little bit of the details, but it's so easy to get sucked in, and I had like three pages of notes on the four kingdoms, and probably a, a full page of that was just on the toes, as I just was studying this and getting caught up in here and going, oh, well, there's a connection here, and there's a connection there. And, and those are all true, but I think they distract us from what God's actually trying to show us here. So we will talk about it. We won't talk about it probably as much as you want to, but there's a reason for that. So as we think of this dream, and I'm just going to kind of give it to you in my words real quickly here. is the king looks and he sees this beautiful yet terrifying image. And it's not clear if he fully understands any, or I shouldn't say fully, if he even understands anything about it, but it, it frightened him enough that he was willing to have every wise man in Babylon killed over it. So my guess is he made some kind of negative assumption about it. And as he sees this great, impressive statue um, starting of gold, right, and as it goes down, it's a little bit less impressive and a little bit less impressive, but it still, as a whole, is incredible. That represents man's accomplishment. Clearly what Daniel says, that represents man's kingdom. Stuff people can make is amazing. I watched, I showed Shayla this yesterday, watching the Paralympics, and there was a dude who didn't have any arms and was a ping pong player, and he used his teeth on a paddle, and he threw the ball up with his bare foot. And I probably wouldn't get a point against him. It's just incredible. This, what man can accomplish is amazing and wonderful. However, the point of the dream here is that the rock that comes, that is cut from no human hand, that represents, represents it comes from God, will destroy everything so easy. God is far superior to what we think, to, to our achievements, to what we think is great and wonderful. The lack of detail about the rock that was cut out is very interesting to me. And I wondered, I went on this little rabbit trail of perhaps it didn't look very impressive. It wasn't made of all these valuable materials, at least not what the world values. And yet it had far superior power. And as I was kind of thinking about this and dwelling on it, I was reminded of a verse that Isaiah prophesies Christ in, in 53, 2. And he says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire. When we read through the New Testament so often, we see that people rejected Christ because they didn't think that he would look that way. And I don't just mean physically, but they expected something far more radiant, far more almost like he would be walking out as an angel sparkling, and they would just know this is who we're going to follow. And I think there's some of that in this dream as well, that rock that's cut out. Yeah, it was not by human hands, but how intimidating does that look? Well, until it strikes the statue and destroys it. All of a sudden, it becomes very real. So Daniel says, King, uh, you're, you're the head of gold. You're the greatest world power that the earth has ever had. Historically fact. But your kingdom has an end. And after your kingdom, another comes. 
and it won't be quite as impressive as the first, but then that kingdom will end and another one will come and it won't be quite as impressive and, and so on. But there's something very crucial to this statue that I missed in my first initial kind of study through this and then the second time couldn't stop noticing it. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, isn't that a term that's only used of God in Scripture? Now, granted, if you have a, a, a more literal translation, if it's done, it's homework for you, is both those kings are small k. And every time we're talking about the king of kings, that is God, it's a big k. So really, what's happening here is it's a play on words. It's, it's the king Nebuchadnezzar thinking he is the greatest of everything. And Daniel's actually saying from a physical standpoint or from a on this earth standpoint, you are the king of kings. Hold on. But God of heaven has given you this kingdom. He's given you the power and the might and the glory. He is above you. He has given to you this kingdom. And to do what over it? Well, verse 38. The children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heavens, you will rule over them. Does that bring to mind anything? When you start talking about an image and rule and beasts of the field and children of the earth and birds of the air, I think Daniel's reminding us of Genesis 1. I think he's trying to say, you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are created in God's image. And he loves you. And he has called us, all of us, not just King Nebuchadnezzar, but all of us. He's given in us the authority to rule over the earth. The problem is we don't like that word rule because it has all kinds of negative connotations to it. We think of someone who rules over us as someone who did what Nebuchadnezzar did, threaten people and, and use violence and corruption and all those things against it. But the whole point of ruling over the earth was to steward what God had entrusted to mankind to be his image bearers in a way that honored God, not us. So Nebuchadnezzar, you're the greatest on earth. Yeah, sure, you're, you're of gold. Wonderful. But it's o- you're only there because God has placed you there. And you're an image of him. But you're not ruling the way that God has called you to rule. And so God's going to destroy you. And not only you, but he talks about the other kingdoms that are coming and that they will rule their sections of the earth. And as those kind of grow and as it changes, is all of those things, they're, they're not going, we know this from history, but they're not going to be good kingdoms that honor God. We see culture get progressively worse and more anti-God. And I think this is very important for us in our culture not to miss right now. Our nation, Canada and the United States below us, are very young nations in the world. And most of you can probably remember a time when you could, you know, pray in school and you could have a classroom to do Bible studies and it was just, Christianity was just a, a part of the fabric of the DNA of our nations. After all, our nations were built amongst those things. But as we see it changing and as we see it getting less uh, God-focused and more egocentric and focused on your own heart and your own will and your own intelligence and your own rights and your own et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, fill in. We become less godly because we become consumed more with our rights than we do with what God has called us to do and how he has called us to steward the world that he has placed us in. 
This doesn't just represent four nations, though it does represent four specific nations. But it reminds us of what Jesus said, is that if you love Jesus, the world's going to hate you. It's going to be against you. You are going to be an antagonist in their world because you stand for things that they don't. And culture never is going to some kind of utopia. It's actually going the opposite direction. And so when you think about this image and you think about the kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar is not ruling the way that he was supposed to. He's looking out for his own might, his own power, his own dominion etc. The rock comes down, and the rock represents the Messiah, which is clear as we read through this. But how did the Messiah rule when he came to earth? Matthew 20, 28 says what? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes, and though he had all the power and all the authority and he could have done whatever he did, he chose to love and show grace and mercy and show people that he wanted to be in relationship with him. It wasn't just about judgment of those who don't follow God. It was about bringing people into relationship with God because he loves you desperately and he wants to be in relationship with you. Jesus looked very different. And that's the kind of leadership that should happen. I'm going through some premarital counseling right now, and we're going through Ephesians 5, and I'm reminded that husbands are to love their wives the way that Christ loved the church and give himself up for her. Literally, men, if you were married, you were to serve your wives to the very point where you will sacrifice your life for her. That's what leadership is. Service. Not getting more what I want. Not picking everything that I think and, and thinking that I'm so wise. And, you know, we, we are all guilty of that. And we need to be reminded that that's not service, or that's not leadership. That's not ruling the way that God has called us to. That's not showing others who Jesus is. It's simply an ego trip. And unfortunately, we are very much a byproduct of our culture that we live in. And we have to fight that. So these four kingdoms, we will talk about them. The first one, clearly, he states is Babylon. Actually, let me back up because we need to address this. In the first week, um, we talked about two possible interpretations of who wrote the book of Daniel. The vast majority of scholars think Daniel actually wrote this and that he is kind of writing it as we're going through the, the exile period. But there is a small group of people that believe this book was written much later in about the second century B.C. after the fact except for the last kingdom. And so they think that it's not the prediction of God saying, here's what's coming, but someone later after the fact saying, here's what happened, and we're going to essentially lie to you and make it sound like God's predicting something that has already happened. So that's the, pretty much the main reason that I can't hold to that interpretation. I don't think the Bible is out to trick us or lie to us or to confuse us. There's many other really compelling evi uh, evidences to show that Daniel did write this. But so Daniel, then the first kingdom is Babylon. The second kingdom is Medo-Persia, which we're going to encounter in this book. And then the third kingdom is the Greeks. Uh, anybody remember your history? Who was the leader of the Greeks? Come on. Alexander the Great, right? Massive world power kingdom. And then the fourth is who? 
the Roman Empire. And this starts to make so much sense when you start to realize that when Jesus came and there was all this question of, is he the Messiah? Their predominant argument was, he's going to overthrow the Roman government and conquer them. Because that's what we read here. The problem is that they didn't have a context that we do of there was a first coming of Christ to deal with sin and death, and then there'll be a second coming dealing with judgment. They thought that was all one thing tied together. And so when Jesus didn't conquer the Roman government, at least not to their liking, many abandoned Christ. But what we know now, and as we read through Scripture, and as we read through some of these older things, it becomes very plain to us, because we have the benefit of history, is that Jesus did come, and he did conquer. There's, there's no more need for sin in your life. You don't have to obey the sinful desires of the flesh because not only did Jesus come to the cross to die on the cross so that your sins are forgiven, he rose again so that death was conquered, but also then he gave you what? The Holy Spirit who's in you so now you no longer have to submit to the flesh. Would you say that's conquering? Praise the Lord that we have the Holy Spirit, that we no longer have to give in to these things, but we can now submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit to live the way that God has called us to. This is what Jesus was demonstrating to us, that service is not about being served. Or, sorry, leadership is not about being served, but about serving others. Jesus modeled that so incredibly well that he was willing to die for those who hated him and wanted him dead. And all the while, you can see his hope and his desire that they would turn from their sin. Not so that he wouldn't suffer. He was hoping they would turn from their sin so they would come into relationship with him because he wants them to be with him for eternity. Jesus loved far more deeply than we ever will understand. At least for sure on this side of eternity, but I kind of think even beyond. And when we evaluate our own hearts, our own culture, the things that are taking place in our world right now, the things that drive us crazy, the things that drive us nuts, have they taken our focus completely off of what it means to be a leader? Are we only focusing on the negative? Are we only focusing on the fighting? Are we only focusing on our own rights? Or are we focusing on, I am called to serve Jesus Christ? And that is far more important than anything else. We as Christians, especially in times like this where there's, there's some challenge, there's difficulty, there's differing opinions all over the place, and that's okay. But it will we as Christians unite together simply saying, we serve the Lord first and foremost. And regardless of whether we agree or disagree with some of these restrictions, some of these other ideas, some of all the stuff that we're seeing on the news, can we come together and can we love Christ and can we let that become the thing where we determine how we're going to act in the rest of our lives. That's what we see in here. That's what the dream represents, that Christ, first of all, came to conquer. The rock was cut out. How far do you want to take that? Is, that? is that representing the virgin birth, not made by human hands? I don't know. Some scholars are wanting to go there. But either way, he comes and he destroys those kingdoms. But there's a second part of that, that then he grows. 
and the mountain takes over the whole world, and there's not a thing left, not even dust of those other empires, of people that are contrary to God, people that are ruling in their own interest and not in the interest of Christ. So is this prophecy that Daniel reads about the end time? Sure, a little bit. But it's far more about the first coming of Christ. And so we ought not to read into it our own eschatological views of going, oh, this proves for sure this view, but it's not intending to do that. Now, we're going to get to chapter 7 and chapter 8, and there's some dreams that are far more second coming than first coming there for us. And so then we can kind of start to deal with and, and interpret those things and find some eschatological opinions. But at this point, we need to slow down and we need to realize this is not about, primarily, not about the second coming. It's about the, remi- or, or the promise to the Jewish people that though you're in exile, though that you're being ruled by kingdoms that are not ruling the way that God would have them rule, one day one is coming who will free you from that. One day one is coming who will fix our broken and sinful hearts. What we know of the New Testament is that that conquering did start to take place. It started to take place in this, a very small group of followers of Jesus radically changed the entire landscape of the world. What prevents us from doing the same today? If we lived with the conviction and the belief and the hope that they had and that they had to have because most of them were dealing with severe persecution. And so they didn't have any hope outside of Christ. They didn't have hope in a free government. They didn't have hope in fair things. They had a very twisted culture. And yet they changed the world. So we too can, as we love the way that Christ loves. That's the point of the dream. All right, last few verses. To all of this, uh, the king responds to Daniel, and he falls on his face, and he acknowledges Daniel has spoken truth, and he even declares that his God, that Daniel's God, to be the greatest of all gods. Now, again, it's real easy to think and to see if we don't read through the rest of the thing that Nebuchadnezzar has changed. But the rest of the book proves that that's not true. Because at this point, all he's doing is he's adding another god to his polytheistic culture. And so I can worship all the gods, and then whenever another god comes along, if he's more powerful, I'll just add him to the list. Except what does Exodus 20 tell us? What's the first commandment in the Ten Commandments that are given? No other gods before me or besides me is maybe a a better way for us to understand that. There is only one. The rest are so-called gods. That's what Paul talks about in the letters. They're so-called gods. We we create them out of wood and stone, and and then we worship them as somehow to give them deity when we don't have the authority to do that anyway. God says, I want you to worship me and me alone, not because he's some egocentric God who can't handle the fact that you might worship other gods. It's because there are no other gods. And so when you adhere worship to them, then you're robbing God of the praise, the glory that he is due, and you're buying into things that are simply not true and not even real. 
And so we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar go through a, a pretty up-and-down journey in the next few chapters where he recognizes that this God clearly is superior. But he's having a hard time of letting go of his old cultural upbringing. That you can worship this God for this time, and this God for this time, and this one's more powerful, so then we'll go to him. Are we that different in our own modern culture now? Or do we worship the one true God as our only God? Or do we also worship money and fame? Fill in the blank. Do those things consume us more than God? We need to make sure that God alone is worthy of our praise and our exaltation, that we will lift him up because he alone is good. The king then gives Daniel, says, honors and many great gifts, which is what he promised he would do if someone could do this. But he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. I said this a couple of weeks ago, but this should just scream to us the pattern of Joseph repeating again. Joseph, who, interpret, who, who was a slave, who interpreted dreams, who was brought up to this exalted place so that he could save not only his nation, but the nation in which he finds himself. Because God is not just about saving his own people at the expense of everybody else. In fact, in Jeremiah, it talks about, the prophet Jeremiah says, you are going to go into exile, and when you go into exile, build houses and live in them. Seek the welfare of the people you're among, not their harm. Joseph does this, Daniel does this, and the province, or sorry, the kingdom of Babylon actually grows and actually under, comes under some blessing because of Daniel, because God is slow to anger. And he's so patient, and he wants them to come to faith in the one true God and who he is. And the same should be true of us, and we need to remind ourselves of this often, is when people wrong us, when they hurt us, when they abuse us, that they're still a child created in the image of God, and God loves them, and he wants desperately to be in relationship with them. So how are we going to treat others? How are we going to treat those that disagree with us? Even if we think it's a very important issue, how we respond to that is crucially important. Remember last week where it says Daniel replied with wisdom and tact. The way in which we treat people should be very wise. And we should look at them the way that God looks at them. When we think about a dream like this, and when we read this, it's easy for us to jump to the second coming of Christ because the first coming has happened. We know that. It's historical. We've seen that. And so it's not wrong for us to long for the second coming of Christ. What is wrong is for us to try and figure out all the details that Jesus said plainly to his disciples. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. You will not know when the second coming comes. It's going to come like a thief in the night. And instead of trying to find out those details, may we live in the assurance that we are bought and paid for by Jesus Christ's blood. That one day, whenever that is, whether that's tomorrow, next year, a thousand years from now, that we will be with him in eternity because of his faithfulness, not us. Not us. And so as we now shift this to communion, and you can flip to 1 Corinthians, we can transition very easily into this idea, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, very easily we can transition into this idea of reminding ourselves 
of the body and the blood of Christ. We can remind ourselves, we can look back on that and remind us of his love for us, that as Paul says in Romans, that even while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. We can remind ourselves that we cannot earn salvation. We cannot somehow be good enough that we rest in the finished work of Jesus for that. We remind ourselves that only in his blood spilled for us did we find salvation. But we also, as Paul says, and we'll read it in a minute, we also remind ourselves that he is coming again. So we look back so that we can look forward. We look back so we can see the promises of God and we can know what's coming. Maybe not all the details. Maybe not as much information as we would like to have. But we can know that he is faithful. So let me read 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You notice how much unity is in that passage? This is not about me and God. This is about us and God. We are the body of Christ. I'm going to pray for the elements. If you didn't get a chance to grab uh, a cracker or the juice at the back, um, feel free to just put your hand up. And and Ryan, do you mind bringing it if there's anybody who needs? And we'll just spend a, a couple of moments in prayer together as we consider these things. I'll just pray, and Lee will will hand that out if you need it. So just keep your eye on him. God, thank you for this morning. As, as we have talked about at length here already, you have created us to be your image bearers, to steward what you have given to us to rule over. God, may we rule the way that Jesus ruled. May we offer grace and mercy and love, forgiveness, kindness to people. Not at the expense of truth, but those things don't have to always be opposites. So may we love people the way that you love us. May we see them the way that you see them as a son or a daughter created in the image of you, that you want to be in relationship with them. And may we see that we have purpose in that as we live, as we speak, as we act, that we can declare that you are above all things. As we see with Daniel in his own humility, he was not concerned for his own praise, for his own glory. He wanted you to receive that. God, I pray that that would be our desire as well. 
God, I don't need any admiration from the world because you love me, and that is sufficient. And so help me to see and understand that, that I might declare to the nations, to all those that we encounter, you are the only true God. And as we read that dream and as we look back to the cross, we are reminded that we could not earn salvation. We could not do a good enough job to somehow merit going to heaven to be with you. But you and your plan of salvation, you knew that we would need a Savior and you knew that we wouldn't even understand what that Savior should look like. But we thank you that Jesus came down to the earth, that he made his himself flesh, and that he dwelt among us. That we would learn and understand what salvation truly is. And so God, as we consider the elements, first the bread, we remember that it was your body that was broken for us. That you alone could be our substitutionary sacrifice. that you could die so that we might live. So God, as we eat the bread, may those truths that we maybe know intellectually would they be far more than that. That they become a part of who we are inside. That we would want to follow after you. God, we are so grateful your body. Amen. Let's eat and remember together. And God, as we hold the cup, knowing that this, this little cup of juice represents your blood that was spilled for us. And right from the beginning where you instituted animal sacrifice, that that blood was always a picture that you would bring Jesus, that Jesus would die on the cross, that his blood would be spilled because his blood alone could bring salvation. And so, God, we are so grateful that we no longer have to make any sacrifice for sins because once for all was accomplished. So, God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that has the power to save. Amen. Let's drink together. God, as we go from this place, as we head back to our homes or to our jobs or to wherever we're headed today, would you lead and would you guide us? Would we recognize that you have given us meaning and purpose in this earth? Give us eyes to see those that are in need. Give us eyes to see those moments where we can share in word or deed 
about who Jesus is. May we focus far more on you than we do on anything of this world. That we might be united together under the Lordship of Jesus. Go with us today. We love you. Amen. Thank you all for coming again. And if you, of course, if you're visiting and you have any needs or any questions or concerns or whatever, you can find some of us uh, at, at the, either at the front or the back. And we hope that you enjoy your stay here. And as always, if you do have any needs of any kind, let the church know we want to we help wherever we can. Hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you again next time.